Thanks for joining me today. This is Murder Bucket, and I'm your host, Hannah. On today's episode, I am going to be sharing with you eight short stories from a book that a friend of mine let me borrow, and the book is called Annapolis Ghosts, History, Mystery, Legends, and Lore by Ed Okonowik. So the first story is called State House Air Dance. The term air dance referred to the final action of executing criminals who were hanged and dropped through a gallows trap door. In Maryland's state capitol building, tragedy occurred to a workman who committed no crime. Instead, he was attempting to complete a job that would last for centuries. Thomas Dance is not known for his fine work, but because of the tragic accident that took his life. On February 23rd of 1793, Thomas was busy at work, plastering the top of the dome when he fell nearly a hundred feet, crashing against the ground. After his tragic death, his wife and children were forced to return to England because the state government would not provide the family any compensation for the plasterer's death. Over the years, there have been many reports of a mysterious figure roaming the Capitol grounds, areas within the building, and of course, at sites near the interior and exterior of the dome where Dance had been working when he suddenly died. In a 1988 article in the Annapolis Capitol, writer Allison Blake referred to Dance as one of the most public haunts in town. Despite no conclusive evidence in the form of photographs or electronic voice phenomena of the ghostly workman's presence, the legend of Thomas Dance persists nearly 215 years after his tragic death. Certainly, the plasterer has become far better known in the afterlife than he was while alive. And as the years pass, any sudden noise, gusty breeze, abrupt chill, mysterious shadow, or unexplained event have been attributed to the unfortunate plasterer who never finished his task on the state capitol dome because he took an unplanned air dance. An interesting fact about the Maryland State House is a black marble line in the floor of the lobby separates the old and new sections of the building. The old section was built between 1772 and 1779, and the new section was built in 1902 and 1905. Story two is about the phantom funeral procession. After the end of the Revolutionary War in 1784, the last royal governor decided to return to the Maryland capital. To no one's surprise, the former British official was greeted with varying degrees of enthusiasm. During his official days, Governor Eden had worked and been friendly with both American rebels and English loyalists, so he still had some friends living in the city. His return to live in Annapolis was a brief one. Within a year of his arrival, Eden died while staying at the home of his friend Dr. Upton Scott. Eden's friends expressed concern that his corpse might be the target of vengeful patriots. To prevent desecration or theft of his body, several of his associates decided that it would be best would be best if the former British official was buried with a little fanfare and in a less prominent location than St. Anne's Churchyard. Under darkness, Eden's coffin was carried down the steep incline of Shipwright Street to the dock at its end, where the narrow road meets Spa Creek. 
Once aboard a waiting barge, the corpse was transported to St. Margaret Cemetery outside of town for interment. 150 years later, Eden's coffin and remains were exhumed and brought back into Annapolis. Today, his body rests in St. Anne's Churchyard below a decorative elevated crypt. It is said a ghostly procession moves along the sloping path of Shipwright Street, recreating the original funeral walk. It is suggested that the slow-moving march of wispy figures occurs on dark, fog-shrouded nights. Some think that they have seen Eden slaves carrying their master's coffin atop their shoulders. Of course, the phantom procession makes no sound as the participants float silently along historic Shipwright Street, heading towards Spock Creek and the awaiting ghost ship. An ornate coat of arms accents Eden's marble-topped tomb at his final resting place with the following inscription. Here lieth buried wide body of Sir Robert Eden Bart, Provincial Governor of Maryland, 1769 to 1776, who departed his life at Annapolis September 2nd of 1784 in the 43rd year of his age. His remains were taken from the sanctuary of the old church of St. Margaret's Westminster and laid beneath this stone by the Society of Colonial Wars in the state of Maryland, June of 1926. Some have questioned whether the body was actually reburied, and wonder if only his grave marker was placed in the churchyard. The next story I'm going to share with you is about the restless mistress of the Hammond Harwood House. Stately Hammond Harwood House stands at the corner of Maryland Avenue and King George Street. The structure is an outstanding example of American colonial architecture. It is known that most women don't like playing second fiddle to anyone or anything, including a house. According to legend, Hammond went about erecting what he was sure to be the most magnificent home in the capital city. In the process, he neglected his fiancée. The aggravated young lady broke off the engagement after waiting patiently for years to witness the completion of the house. Some say Hammond decided not to live in the mansion alone and instead resided in his country home, Howard's Adventure in Gambrels, Maryland, where he died and was buried. A story began circulating that the neglected woman later changed her mind and returned to the builder, becoming the secret mistress of the house. It is said she would enter and exit the mansion through a secret path using two keys that were buried beneath loose bricks in the cellar. The mysterious romance continued for some time, and when the woman died, her body was buried in a secret crypt under the estate's garden. It is said that there have been occasional appearances of her apparition looking out the windows in the upper floors of the building and strolling through the formal garden. These sightings might be evidence of the lady's everlasting presence and her satisfaction with the excellent workmanship of the building. The author of the story inquired about the legend with the executive director of the Hammond Harwood House, Carter Lively, asking if he had heard the story. Lively states that he knows of no secret chamber or burial site in the manicured gardens, he did make note that the gardens are much smaller today than they were when the house was built. If so, one wonders, could there be a slight chance that the legend is true? Could the mistress of the house rest in a forgotten grave located somewhere beyond the present-day boundaries of this estate? 
This next story is called Strange Tales at Governor's Bridge. Governor's Bridge is located south of Route 50, a short ride west of Annapolis. Approaching the Haunted Bridge from the Prince George's County western side, the word Satan is painted in red capital letters on a rusted road sign, catching your eye. Driving across the bridge and parking along the wooded shoulder of the road in Anne Arundel County allows visitors to walk back onto the bridge and peer over its side. Travelers have mentioned sightings of a girl in a flowing white gown standing in the center of the bridge who seems to be waiting for a ride. Some people stop, invite her into their car, but she disappears as soon as the passenger door is opened. Other drivers are too afraid to stop and drive through the misty apparition. People have heard crying baby sounds, which seem to originate in the water below the bridge. Some people believe a deranged mother had thrown her young child over the bridge. Others say a baby fell into the water following a car accident. Late night travelers have said they've rounded the bend about a quarter mile before reaching the bridge on the Anne Arundel County side, seen flashing lights coming from the center of the structure, thinking that the presence of emergency vehicles indicates a serious accident, the drivers slow down their car as they approach the river. Suddenly, the flashing light will disappear, and as they drive across the bridge, there is no indication of an accident, police presence, or roadblock. Despite its reputation, the dark wooded region around Governor's Bridge continues to attract teenage visitors seeking a weekend thrill and also lure professional ghost hunters searching for photography and audio evidence of visitors from the other side. But remember, shadows and sounds of the night excite the imagination and tend to exaggerate personal tales of terror. People often see what they want to see. Each hoot of the owl becomes a werewolf's cry, and each rustling branch announces the impending arrival of the escaped mental patient. Story 5 is called The Ghost of Glen Burnie. It involves a tragic event that some believe occurred at historic Curtis Creek Furnace. In the mid-1700s, working conditions in all small manufacturing operations were difficult. With no government regulations, all of the laborers were subject to the mercy of of the owners and their appointed managers. As expected, things were particularly hard on the workers that were slaves, one of whom had been badly abused by his supervisor. Apparently, having reached his breaking point, the slave decided he could no longer endure any more physical pain and mental pressure. To escape his dead-end existence, which offered no hope of freedom, the slave committed suicide by jumping into the deadly furnace. Just before he plunged into the heat of the bubbling fire, the slave is said to have turned to his menacing overseer and shouted, You won't beat me no more. A state historical marker located along the northbound lane of Route 2, just north of Sawmill Creek and the intersection of Furnace Branch Road, offers a clue to the location and history of the furnace. It states, the Curtis Creek Furnace, located on the south side of Furnace Creek, one half mile east of Ritchie Highway, was established in 1759 and with a foundry built in 1829, continuing to turn out high-grade charcoal pig iron until abandoned in 1851. But few drivers along Governor Ritchie Highway are aware of the haunted history believed to have occurred in the region hundreds of years ago. The next story is called Murdered Russian Sailor Buried in Annapolis National Cemetery. One grave in Annapolis National Cemetery 
does not contain the body of a member of the armed forces or a family member. Grave number 2420 in section G is the resting place of a foreigner in Demendoff, a Russian seaman who was killed in Annapolis on February 4th of 1864. He was serving on the Russian man-of-war Almy, which was docked in the town harbor while on a goodwill tour of the United States. The Almy crew was waiting on warmer weather that would allow the crew to set sail. With the Civil War still raging in full force, Union troops patrolled the tent city, constantly on the lookout for Confederate spies and Southern troublemakers. On a cold evening, not too far from the city dock, Demondoff and his shipmates were making the rounds, sampling the taste of several towns' ample number of saloons. When a bartender at one watering hole refused to serve the foreigners, the Russians began to argue. Federal troops intervened to help the pub owner remove the drunken foreign sailors from the premises. However, once outside, words were exchanged, tempers flared, and during the fight, Sailor Demondoff was shot and killed. A week after the killing, both American and Russian officials, along with the military personnel and townspeople, attended a religious Greek rite service at the Naval School Chapel, marched in the funeral procession through town, and silently witnessed Demondoff's official gravesite ceremony and burial in Annapolis National Cemetery. Interesting fact I found out about the Annapolis National Cemetery. The tops of the graves of Confederate soldiers have a slight point, whereas the Union stones are rounded. The next story is called Camp Parole, Annapolis's link with the Civil War. In the Civil War, the city's major role was an exchange center of both Union and Confederate prisoners. This transfer practice, known as paroling, began during the War of 1812. It was done to reduce the captor's expense of holding, treating, and feeding the opponent's troops for an extended period of time. While waiting to recuperate before heading home or to rejoin their units, injured and ill troops were housed in a variety of locations. These sites included available space in city hospitals, temporary infirmary buildings, available room on the nearby Naval College grounds, and in farm fields. The campus of St. John's College became a major center for the sick with wounded parole Union prisoners from the South housed in the school buildings and in tents erected throughout the college green. The number of parolees at the college eventually reached more than 3,000. To keep the soldiers away from the temptations of the city, some of the men were transferred to temporary quarters on the banks of the South River. As more troops arrived, more room was needed. Camps were hastily established on a farm southwest of town, and in a few months, more than 20,000 men were encamped there. Frequently, there were reports of soldiers from the camps straying into Annapolis, where they got involved in arguments with the locals and terrified the residents. The commander of Camp Parole restricted access to Annapolis, canceling passes in town and even forbidding gambling and drinking of liquor. Cavalry troops were assigned to the camp to help maintain order, capture deserters, and prevent wandering troops from bothering local farmers, area residents, and city merchants. In 1863, the Army constructed buildings and named the area Parole Barracks. This area grew to more than 50 barrack buildings and was called Camp Parole. Nearly 70,000 prisoners awaiting parole were processed through Camp Parole. 
Camp Parole was closed and disbanded in 1865, people tend to wonder what amount of human remains might rest beneath the modern housing developments, highways, shopping centers, and schools. Some of the graves marked unknown in Annapolis National Cemetery are from deaths that occurred at Camp Parole. There are more than 200 unknown grave sites in this small four-acre cemetery. Our last story is about John Paul Jones's final resting place. John Paul Jones was born in Scotland on July 6, 1747, and he came to the American colonies at the age of 26. He received a commission in the Continental Navy and commanded four ships. He never lost a battle and was known for his courage and warrior-like spirit. On July 8, 1792, in failing health and relatively poor, he died in Paris. Since he had limited financial resources and was not extremely popular with some officials, Jones's death was ignored by the U.S. minister to France. The American sailor was buried in a Protestant cemetery about four miles outside of Paris. However, upon hearing this indignity, the French government stepped in and gave Jones a hero's reburial and preserved his corpse in alcohol in a lead coffin lined with straw. In the U.S., there seemed to be no interest in the fate of the late great hero, although a ship was named after Jones in 1834. It was later learned by a journalist that the rural site of the cemetery outside Paris had become part of the expanding city of Paris. Unfortunate for those seeking the naval hero's remains, buildings had since devoured the general area of the lost graveyard. When the housing site was condemned, an excavation was conducted to locate the lost admiral, with workers spending weeks tunneling through old basements, caverns, and beneath the city's ancient streets. When the five lead coffins were discovered, the records that indicated Jones had been preserved in alcohol and tucked in with straw helped the searchers locate the correct lost body. The body was discovered on April 8th of 1905. With an American flag draped across a wooden coffin, Jones was honored with a parade through Paris. At the port of Cherbourg, nearly a dozen naval crafts of both France and the U.S. escorted the father of the American Navy to his final resting place. His body arrived in Maryland on July 22, 1905, and there he waited to be buried once again. Since Congress had not appropriated the funds, there was no waiting tomb and Jones's corpse sat in a storage room in the basement of Bancroft Hall for a year until the official welcome home ceremony was held on April 24th of 1906. Jones's corpse was hauled back into the basement of Bancroft Hall for Congress still had not acted to approve funding for his crypt. It would be six years later on January 26th of 1913 when John Paul Jones had his final burial in an ornate marble sarcophagus, now located in the lower level of the Naval Academy Chapel. A plaque on the crypt wall states, For more than a century, the mortal remains of our first great sailor lay in an unknown grave lost to his country. The nation is indebted to General Horace Porter for his patriotic efforts in the discovery and identification of the body. On a hallway at the entrance of the crypt, a dark brass plate preserves the following words, Every officer in our Navy should know by heart the deeds of John Paul Jones. Every officer in our Navy should feel in each fiber of his being the eager desire to emulate the energy, 
the professional capacity, the determination, and dauntless scorn of death which marked John Paul Jones above all his fellows. President Theodore Roosevelt. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I wanted to let you know how you can find me on social media. Facebook, you can find me at MurderBucket. Instagram, at MurderBucket. That's M-U-R-D-B-U-C-K-E-T. And Twitter, at The Murder Bucket. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get notifications when I upload a new episode. Thank you for listening to Murder Bucket, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode.